Today, we've got a very impressive duo presentation from Ted Fisher and David Napier. And Ted Fisher is Vanderbilt University. He's Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of Anthropology, and he directs a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation project in collaboration with the World Health Organization Europe on the cultural context of health and well-being. In 2009, he founded Mani Plus, an award-winning social enterprise in Guatemala that develops and produces locally sourced foods to deal with undernutrition. And he currently serves on the board of the Maya Education Foundation. His research is focused on political economy, values, well-being, and development. And David Napier is Professor of Medical Anthropology at University College London and Director of the University's Centre for Applied Global Citizenship and Director of its Science, Medicine and Society Network. He's Global Academic Lead for the Nova Nordisk Cities Changing Diabetes Programme, which is a cross-sectoral collaboration aimed at researching and limiting the rise of type 2 diabetes in cities around the world. Among his research interests, assessing vulnerability, primary healthcare delivery and human well-being. Today, they collectively speak to the topic, the cultural context of health, global lessons and policy insights from the COVID-19 pandemic. Gentlemen, the, the floor is yours. Super. Thanks Thank so much, Stanley. Much. Yeah, it's great to be here with you today. We really appreciate the opportunity to share with this group. This connection originally came about through Sabine uh, Parrish, who's on the call, and whose dissertation committee I was on because the two of us share a common research interest and, I guess, practical interest. And I was telling Sabine about this cultural context of health project uh, that we will speak on today. And I was saying that we're, we're planning on doing something around childhood and adolescent. And she said, well, you, you know, Stanley, uh, and you know, the UBVO stuff. And I said, no. And so she sent me the link and I went to your webpage and it was this thrill of excitement because our idea was to bring social and cultural insights to what is still largely the biomedical policy discussions around obesity, and then to translate sort of state-of-the-art social science into policy-friendly formats and recommendations. So I go to your website and I'm poking around and I'm just, you know, I'm like so exhilarated that you are doing this already, what we have envisioned. And then that was quickly followed by sort of a, a disappointment that you were doing this already and so well, albeit in a, in a slightly different context, but been a real inspiration for us at this intersection of culture and obesity studies and policy and having a real policy impact in the UK within the WHO framework. And this is very similar to what we're trying to do with the cultural context of health approach. So today I'm gonna to talk a little bit about our approach and our model of the cultural context of health and well-being. Our first report, which our first report was going to be on adolescent and childhood obesity and nutrition, then the pandemic hit, so we pivoted and we wrote our first report on the pandemic, and I'm going to talk about that in our results uh, briefly today. Uh, and now we're starting, uh, or we're into the research on our, our second report, which is looking at uh, childhood and adolescent obesity, nutrition, food systems, the whole angle there. So I'm going to talk about that fairly briefly, give you an introduction to what we're doing, our project and its philosophy, the results of our first report, and where, where we're thinking about going with the second report. Uh, and then David in the second half is going to talk about 
about how he has brought cultural and social insights into the city's Changing Diabetes program and their efforts to deal with, to, to prevent and to uh, address uh, obesity around the world. And, and there's a link to the interest of those of you on this call and the, and the UPBO. We want this to be the first in a series of conversations with you collectively and with you in the individually. So the cultural context of health. This began in the WHO's Regional Office for Europe, an initiative in their data collection and analysis unit looking at the cultural context of health and well-being. It was led by a young human medical humanities PhD, Niels Fitcher, uh, started in 2014 and has really tried to bring social science knowledge. It was sold to the WHO as bringing new kinds of data to their data analysis unit. Sometimes quantitative data, but more often qualitative and humanist uh, sorts of data to the table in these policy discussions. David and I have both uh, advised this group uh, uh, since its start. I think it's actually very clever, partly by accident and partly by intention. Very clever that it started in the data analysis unit as a, a, a way of bringing social science data into the policy conversation in the WHO, which is still, you know, got this very, very strong biomedical and hard science uh, bias. So nice to bring it in that way. And actually, unit has recently been reorganized and renamed as the Behavioral and Cultural Insights Unit. So it's sort of taken hold at WHO Regional Office for Europe. And that's the second part. It's really nice that it started at the Regional Office for Europe, actually, and not the Office for Africa or Latin America or Asia. If it started in some of those other places, it would be too easy, I fear, for the folks in Geneva to think, oh, yeah, culture, it's like it's what those people have, right? over there by having it start in the European region, it really focuses that we too, uh, even those of us who wear white lab coats, have culture. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation supported this effort in WHO Europe. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson, you may not be familiar with it. It is actually one of the world's largest foundations in terms of their endowment, uh, but they work almost exclusively in the United States. They've started doing a little bit of global stuff, and it's under the umbrella of Global Lessons for U.S. Solutions. Uh, but nonetheless, they were they've been long committed to a systems approach to help taking into account that obesity, for example, involves public planning and, you know, religious and political beliefs, as well as the biomedical presenting uh, symptoms in a, in, a, in a clinic. And so they've long been open to bring having a, a really big tent for the conversation about health and health policy in the U.S. And so they were interested in this idea that was incubating in WHO Europe around the cultural context of health and well-being. They asked, they ask if I would uh, bring this over to the states and try and, and build a bridge between these programs. And I agreed. And they said, you can you can research any topics that you want uh, over the course of, of, of this grant, uh, but we would like you to deal with, first of all, childhood obesity and nutrition, as it's one of our focus areas for the foundation. And then we ran into the 
the pandemic uh, blip. You may have heard about this pandemic that's been going on. Yeah, it sort of put a, put a kink in our plans uh, and we had to retool and produce this first report of which you see the cover of here. The cultural context of health and well-being approach, I feel a little funny talking to this crowd about it. This is, this is going to be some preaching to the choir. Sometimes the choir needs to be reminded why we do what we do and, and how important it is. In public health conversations and even in global public health, global health, culture is talked about more and more, but it's still mostly talked about in the sense of being a barrier to care, a, a, an obstacle to medical intervention, a barrier to compliance, right? And something, again, that they have, those other people have culture. And if they would just sort of, you know, swallow the science sometimes literally in the form of this pill, if we could just get it down their throat and they didn't believe I was trying to uh, do something nefarious to them, we would all be, be better off. Our approach, which I suspect that we share with many of you, tries to bring a, well, frankly, a more contemporary understanding of culture, of culture as, you know, not a stereotyped list of traits, but as something dynamic, as something ever-changing, as a source of creativity and inspiration, as much as a, a straitjacket, something that is, is malleable. And so our approach, and I've thrown up here a, a list of principles or of, of primary aims that, uh, that our approach seeks to promote. It really tries to use, you know, work with culture, engage cultural understandings and cultural beliefs and cultural energy uh, rather than trying to overcome them. And recognizing that culture is just cultural beliefs are just as real as bacteria and viruses in the sense that they motivate people's behavior. They have real world implications and consequences. And nowhere is that seen better than in the, the COVID pandemic, right? Like we, we, we cannot understand the COVID pandemic just by looking through a microscope, just by sequencing the SARS-CoV-2 genome. It has been produced, the effects, the lived effects of the, of the pandemic has been produced by the intersection of this virus with different cultural and social and political and economic context. And so in a way, the virus presents us with a something of a natural experiment. If we think of it being essentially the same virus, and that's hard to say these days with the profusion of variants coming up, but thinking about it in early days when we were writing this report, essentially the, the same virus, different context, in different political contexts, uh, under different economic regimes, uh, different social and political, uh, social and cultural communities, different outcomes and different outcomes that have changed over time, right? It would have been a mistake to call early winners. So what we did was we looked for examples of uh, the ways in which people were trying to deal with the effects of the pandemic, uh, taking into account uh, cultural context uh, from around the world and translate those into policy recommendations uh, in the U.S. context. We came up with five, uh, five recommendations. Uh, I'm just going to go through these uh, fairly quickly to give you a sense of what we were thinking and give you a couple of examples of the, the underlying uh, data. First is just the way in which we talk about and think about the virus makes a difference in how we're able to deal with it. If this is an external enemy, if this is a foreign invader, if we talk about it in terms of war, it's going to lead certain kinds of policies 
and mindsets that are that can be very easily xenophobic or nationalistic and have counterproductive side effects in terms of excluding certain kinds of of populations. There was this great effort uh, actually based out of the UK, the hashtag re, oh man, uh, rethink, rethink uh, COVID. I'm forgetting the name right now, but they came up with a ton of other metaphors that had been used around the world. The Dutch prime minister was was very conscientious about uh, using marathon uh, metaphors, ecosystems out of out of out of whack, um, uh, malware, different kinds of metaphors that could be used to invoke different kinds of responses among the among the population. And in fact, and this is something that David has pointed out uh, repeatedly to me as someone who studied the the social context of virology early in his career, that really. This is a matter of learning to live with the virus one way or another, you know, either getting infected and getting uh, gaining immunity that way, getting a vaccination. We're, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus, um, which is not unlike the way in which uh, many indigenous peoples from the Navajo to the Maya to the Balinese uh, would envision our complicated relationship, uh, our web of, of relations between human and non-human actors in the, in the world. So I, I don't want to go too far into that, but the way in which we talk about the virus uh, and the pandemic affects the way in which we deal with it. It's always going to be metaphorical. We should try and be as close to the science as we can in our communication, but we're always going to have to resort to metaphors. But policymakers should be very intentional about what those metaphors should be, which leads us to our second observation and recommendation that different cultural values can be called upon in pandemic responses to different sorts of effects. Now, I think we have, and a lot of people, especially in epidemiology and global public health, have these very simple notions of, well, we can divide the world into collectivist societies and individualistic societies and collectivist societies, for example, are able to mobilize pro-social behavior more effectively. And that's just the way in which the world is. But of course, we know that all societies contain a multitude of, you know, value possibilities. In the States, we are, we're famous, we're infamous for our pick yourselves up by the bootstraps, uh, Horatio Alger story, myths and motivating uh, frameworks. But we also talk about uh, collective barn raising, uh, communities coming together to solve a problem. Let's throw a show and raise the money. And leaders can call on different sorts of values. And we saw a, you know, a fairly radical difference around the world. Uh, the prime minister of Denmark, uh, invoking the term Samfunzend, which was a semi-archaic uh, Danish term, uh, sort of to a common good, sacrifice for a common good. Uh, and she explicitly called upon this as a Danish value. And thus, we need to be masking. Thus, we need to be maintaining social distance. Thus, we need to be making these sacrifices for a common good. Now, one of our jokes in coming up with this report is our conclusion can't be everybody should just be Denmark. Uh, and it does seem like the pro-social stuff, the Nordic countries do do particularly well. Uh, but Rwanda, we also saw a very similar kind of thing, the invocation of a term that had first been used during the Ebola epidemics, uh, Ubudehe, very similar, a sacrifice for a common good tied to public health uh, benefits and effectively being able to, to motivate uh, folks. 
And in Canada, I love this in British Columbia, rather than listing very detailed recommendations for what businesses and organizations should do in terms of social distancing and stuff, they issued a list of eight principles. And they said, okay, figure out the best way locally to adhere to these principles and go for it. And that's both sort of trust building with local organizations, but recognizing that people, there is a creativity to culture that can be uh, called upon in, in these contexts. We have seen and are continuing to see issues of trust, uh, especially in the vaccination campaigns. Uh, it is a realization that trust is hard earned and easily lost. And folks can't show up late and just say, hey, trust me and roll up your arm and let me inject you with this uh, shot. Uh, trust has to be built up through community engagement over time and the investment that that requires and the working with local communities uh, and sometimes working with communities that we normally wouldn't work with. Uh, in our report, we use the example of organizations working with gangs in the favelas of Rio uh, to impose public health measures. Uh, and I just saw something similar. I think it was in, it was either in Finland or Denmark. Uh, I think it was actually in Denmark, the authorities working with, uh, with local gangs uh, to, uh, to roll out vaccinations. There are serious, uh, our fourth, uh, you know, there, there are serious mental health implications from uh, COVID isolation measures, depression, eating disorders, anxieties. There are feedback loops if we don't uh, take into account the, the, the psychological pressures. And that the vulnerabilities, the vulnerabilities that emerged during this pandemic were sometimes counterintuitive, well-paid physicians sometimes and frontline workers uh, like that. And that, so that vulnerabilities are really emergent. They're compounded from various factors. And this builds on work that David's going to talk about in, in just a minute that he's been doing on, on vulnerability assessments uh, around diabetes. They're not just pre-existing medical conditions, but social and cultural and economic and political factors can, can create both vulnerabilities and forms of resistance. And so it's really important that we take these into account, again, with the trust long term, right? This isn't our last pandemic. We need to learn from this. We need to uh, build back better is the, the phrase that gets uh, gets bandied about a lot. Uh, but we really, we really do need to do that. And, and this ties into policy reports that have been produced, written by you and produced at the UBVO. The COVID-19 pandemic is an acute one, but the issues underlying it are chronic, uh, multifaceted, and interrelated. There are no silver bullet solutions to this. But the further upstream we go, the more we can deal with these, you know, a, a manageable number of, albeit bigger, problems. Uh, and if we continue to sort of relegate the social and cultural to the sidelines or to icing on the cake, uh, we're going to be poorly prepared for the next pandemic. So this is this is an area where anthropology and social science and humanities can not only can needs to make a difference in the world. And so to conclude, I just want to, to mention briefly that we uh, have started, uh, we've been working on this report on youth nutrition and obesity. 
uh, and some of the topics that we uh, that have emerged from the literature review and that we're diving deeper into. For a lot of people in the nutrition world, this idea that food is more than macro and micronutrients is actually still quite novel, right? And then we can't just tell people how many grams of something that they should eat every day, that food is tied to identity and to cultural traditions and to expressions of love and caring, and that it is complicated. Doesn't make for the best policy recommendation you know, it's complicated, <laughs> but it is. We want to focus a lot of work around uh, obesity interventions has been focused on individual choice. And we really want to look at histories of exclusion and histories of, you know, culinary colonization and the way in which this has affected diets today and patterns of structural racism and, and uh, other forms of exclusion. Body sizes, taking different body sizes seriously, the well-known problems with the BMI, even putting aside, you know, it's, it's ancient history with ties to, to eugenics and, and things like that. But the, in the very recent definition of obesity as a disease, there are clear health correlations, you know, type two diabetes, absolutely. But how do we, how do we deal with different body sizes, not shaming people? We do know very well, right, from decades of social science research around medical interventions that shaming doesn't work. And so how can we talk about these uh, issues in a way that, uh, that can unite fat people and medical interests? And this is all in the context of commercial interest and global agro-industrial food systems. And we're really trying to include fat voices and seeing youth as agents uh, in this process. So still early days. But those are the things that we've been uh, we've been thinking about. I'm going to end here and turn it over to David, who's going to go into uh, some more detail and depth on the application of social uh, uh, cultural anthropology and social science research to diabetes in this global program. Thank you very much, Ted. First of all, Ted, thanks for the really. Um, it's nice, though we've been working together for so many years. It's really nice to hear. Um, an overview of what uh, what we've been trying to do because yeah i mean sometimes it's difficult to to actually step back and take a look at what you're doing when things are happening oftentimes very quickly but i want to first of all reiterate ted's comment about this being um first in a series of of conversations and uh, uh, the the preaching to the choir side uh, hopefully we'll try to minimize that as much as possible um uh as ted's uh, pointed out we uh, very much deeply respect the work that yeah, you and your group, um, Stanley, have been uh, working on. I'm going to try to try to actually steer the conversation now a little bit from COVID to not to sugar specifically, but in that direction via uh, diabetes and obesity. I thought in the interest of, yeah, of moving the conversation forward to, to spend my minutes here discussing some of the structural ways we are trying to approach this via the social sciences perspective, both, both at the level of what we're doing with Robert Wood Johnson and some of the cities changing diabetes work, which is actually more of a a research infrastructure than a unified um, uh, uh, program. And um, then just maybe just say a couple of words at, at the end about um, about the way in which we uh, do that at the level of uh, research on the ground. So I'm just going to jump right in. Clearly, uh, this is no news to anybody. And and, and I'm going to use uh, some images from the press, not because I, there aren't scholarly things to cite, but, but I, I think that given the fact that we're working with policy, oftentimes the way things are presented 
in the press really um, does make a difference, as Ted was pointing out, at the level of metaphor in how we how we uh, how we approach these problems. But clearly, uh, we're all aware of of the studies that have shown the, uh, the the direct relationship between diabetes and obesity in terms of uh, deaths from COVID nineteen. So we can move upstream here a little bit already in terms of uh, the three quarters of, of people in, in intensive care who uh, with obesity who are um, uh, um, uh, being who are struggling significantly. The the forty eight percent of those who die in intensive care living with with obesity and the way in which this is not only these are important facts that that in a syndemic sense link these but also how they are um, understood and uh, represented in in the public imaginary and then of course we can go from that the the fact that not only do a third of all hospitals for COVID-19 involve diabetes but now more recently, uh, the understanding that COVID-19 itself can produce alterations in glucose metabolism, taking us all the way upstream to, to, to that, um, that the enhances uh, diabetes path, uh, pathophysiology uh, for survivors and indeed leads to new mechanisms potentially provoking the early onset of the disease um, uh, among those who've, uh, who've been exposed to COVID-19. So the point that I want to make in a nutshell is, and again, this is not new to any of you, but thinking about what the, what this means socially and how we conceptualize this at the level of policy, not only are diabetes and obesity major drivers of mortality morbidity, right, but it, it looks like the virus itself can catalyze among survivors this early onset of this non-communicable disease by modifying uh, glucose metabolism. And I think that this is um, really uh, important for us because it puts us in a position where the kind of work that your group is doing and the kind of work that we're doing, both at the RWJF level and also from Cities Changing Diabetes, it puts us in a position to think about how we break this cycle or disrupt these relationships. And in particular, as I say here, how do we better uh, understand and address the ongoing challenges of obesity, prediabetes, and diabetes, and how um, at the policy level, we scale up relationships between policymakers and researchers, which is something I want to talk a little bit about. And policy recommendations, for example, the the, the RWJF initiatives that Ted's uh, nicely described, and outcomes. And then Finally, to put that in the context of, yeah, media and, and, and awareness. And, and I just wanted to bring us right back to August 2020 when we got this Institute for Public Policy Research report, uh, which had a lot, of, a lot of visibility in the press. And again, I'm, I'm not citing the scholarly data here. I'm, I'm trying to focus on what this means for a public to see in the independent, this picture of M&Ms and so forth, and be told that 20% of children enter secondary school are obese and that it counts, uh, accounts for 85% of all the biological risks for diabetes. And to point out that, yes, we know that the data that I was just referring to about rates in COVID-19 being three times, uh, 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 people living with diabetes being three times out of the overall population. At the same time, the social uh, dimensions of that and the sociocultural dimensions of that are fairly, um, uh, in my view, at least, underrepresented. And that's that leads to some of the work that we're doing for Cities Changing Diabetes. But in particular, that report, the IPBR report, cites the success of the soda tax in Mexico. And here you see our Cities Changing Diabetes academic lead, um, a head of nutrition at the uh, um, National Institute for Public Health in Cuernavaca, Asimo Barquera, who uh, was repeatedly cited within the context of the the the, the impact of um, food labeling on obesity and Mexico's attempt to shift from disease uh, 
prevention to um, health promotion uh, so far as that is possible. But what was largely left out of that conversation was the extent, and this is what I want to build on here, to which that uh, work was based upon sound data taken on the ground, carrying out vulnerability assessments uh, for diabetes and obesity, and matching those to larger data sets that were a part of a household survey that involved 2,000 some households and blood samples and all the rest of it, where we could actually integrate the what would be called qualitative data, what we call what we call lived experience, and how we assess that, and how we bring lived. Uh, and this is kind of like our slogan in this work: is how we bring lived experience to the level of uh, of evidence. So I'm going to talk uh, just for a few minutes about cities changing diabetes. I know we don't have a lot of time, and then I'll say a few words about the vulnerability assessment. And then I've got some examples if we have time for them in the discussion. If not, then then um, we'll see we'll see where that goes. This was a a uh, public private partnership started in 2014 between um, Novo Nordisk, that manufactures about half the world's insulin, as you know, uh, University College London, and the Zeno Diabetes Center in Copenhagen, which is now was originally from the 30s part of Novo Nordisk, now is an independent entity, which has five research centers across Denmark that are. Uh, funded uh, by the um, by, by the, um, the the Danish government, it was a I could say give a whole talk about what it's like for university to experiment on a public private partnership. Uh, Novo Nordisk is um, largely found, foundation owned and controlled. We wanted to go into this uh, as an experiment. Uh, we thought it might last for uh, maybe a year or two. Uh, we've got some articles about what it's str- like struggling to you know get involved in a one of these public-private partnerships with an organization that a business that makes money on uh, on diabetes and to uh, talk in detail about that. And indeed, we are publishing about that um, with them and independently. But the point is that the program did not did not dissolve. In fact, um, as of last week, we now have uh, 40 partners globally uh, representing more than uh, 222 million people, the public health departments that the program is engaged with. And for us, this has been uh, a very interesting journey, particularly because, as I mentioned before, what Cities Changing Diabetes is, although we do have tools that we use for assessing vulnerability, I'll say a little bit about that in the very end, it actually is a research infrastructure. That is to say, it's driven by local global academic leads in every one of the cities uh, that you see on this map. While we provide some assistance and we have a global academic network, which hopefully shares findings from various cities with other cities, the idea here is to how generate information locally because what we call case definitions of vulnerability, that is to say the way in which these complex risk factors, both biological, syndemically, but also the social, um, economic, and other environmental risk factors, how they impact one another and fuel one another at the local level, which is completely anathema to the randomized controls trial mentality, uh, how they fuel one another is, is the key to understanding why people become vulnerable and lose their capability opportunity and motivation to use that behavior change language. And again, we could talk more about that in the discussion, but just to say that we were rather surprised by the fact that there was significantly more uptake and continues to be uptake of the program than than we initially anticipated when we began with just um, a couple of a couple of cities. The goals of the program are therefore this this mapping, this local on the ground research 
some kind of sharing of uh, what we find. And this is very much the same in the spirit of, this, of the work that you do, and then trying to uh, work with local and global advocates uh, on action-oriented or oriented oriented plans. But at the same time, there are policy challenges. And I, I would like to spend a couple of minutes talking about the policy challenges, because for us, they're quite real, um, not only at the level of the food traffic signaling and soda tax, the work from Simo Barquero, which I'm going to say something about in a minute, but also, um, as Ted said, arguing on the basis of real-world data, what, what, what the validity of social science knowledge as it relates to the other kinds of epidemiological data that people generally um, respect and, um, without thinking that the, uh, there's a lot of unreported evidence that needs to be understood if you're going to understand vulnerability. And then the political, which I want to get to here because uh, I think that we would be naive to think that getting involved in this work does not have serious and significant uh, consequences. And I will mention uh, Simone Barquetta because that's the example. Uh, this is a this is from a lead article from the New York Times in which in which uh, uh, Simone was receiving uh, one of the people receiving odd messages about um, family disasters and threats and so forth because um, he had been subjected by this Pegasus software, which was supposedly only available to governments to be used for anti-terrorism activities. And here was nefariously used to uh, to discourage people who were involved in in working on the soda tax and um, and, and signaling signaling initiatives. A very interesting article. But the evidence is pretty obvious, and this is probably familiar to most of you anyway, but you can see here that what's interesting was as this initiative got underway, we, we immediately saw 2010 to 12, we saw a decline. And by 2014, when you get the actual legislation, what's really interesting here is not just the, the, the sweet, uh, steep decline in the use of um, sugar-sweetened beverages, but more interestingly, in my view, the sharp rise in, in the use of, of water. This was something that was politically rather charged. And uh, our our research in Mexico City reported a rate of about 70% of diabetes, but climbing very swiftly. And of course, that percentage could go way up depending politically how you partitioned what you called Mexico City and what your cohorts were and where you were working. All of which is to say that uh, we began to realize uh, quite quickly that there were lots of other knock-on effects of doing this kind of work that would not necessarily, you would expect within the context of places where people uh, work under more favorable uh, research conditions as it relates to the relationship between policymakers and the people that they are meant to serve. With that in mind, I, I want to switch for a few minutes to the diabetes vulnerability assessment because pretty much out of time if we're going to have a discussion. I just want to say a few words about what we actually do in cities. Uh, this assessment was something that we developed in 2008 with the United Nations in the advent of the uh, Cyclone Nargis disaster in Myanmar, where we had um, a serious, serious uh, uh, health disaster uh, built around a natural disaster and also a political levels of political disruption that uh, were seriously uh, more, more limiting than even what I've just described in the context of, of Mexico. And I won't go back, but you all remember the difficulty that any NGO had working in Myanmar at the time. And we realized that part of the challenge with understanding vulnerability was that people, we started out, the UN wanted us to include 20 questions in a women in child protection group, which I, I was working with on, a, on the household survey, which again was 2,400 some people, uh, households involving 13,000 people. It took a long time to do that, to understand service utilization patterns, who got served, who didn't, 
as a short-term, long-term. In other words, to, to get a sense of how the formal sector, both the NGO and government sectors were operating. Uh, but what we, what we decided to do instead was to actually use a day filter on the household survey so we could kick out local houses to visit immediately within literally of two days of starting to do the household surveys. We could find households with malnourished children or households with children caring for other children. In other words, standard categories of vulnerability and go in and examine the community domain to understand what happens when a crisis takes place and inequalities are exaggerated. Who are the who become advocates? Who are the stakeholders? The stakeholders change over time. They're not often the people who appear that they're that are representing people in a, a refugee camp where the there actually may be people in that context who themselves don't um, actually have voice because they're not part of a, a group that's quote unquote representative. In other words, trying to understand the dynamics of what happens. And I can say more about that, but the key dimension of this was using this intervention, this assessment process to ask people if they knew other people who had experienced their same problem, but for whom actually attending something like an interview was impossible and go out and find those people and find out what the barriers are that keep those them from becoming a epidemiological data set, okay? In other words, what, what, what can we actually do to bring their lived experience, as we say here, to the level of evidence, to define these, um, these, to characterize these, to see if these are scalable, to see how the complex risk factors work together, and to see if actually we can put numbers on them, which eventually uh, we were able to do. In the diabetes work, this is a, actually an old slide, but I wanted to put it in here because of what's on the right, not on the left. We've done uh, many, many more hours than are apparent here. This was for the first, actually, this was already with the first six cities involved in, in the program only. And for the current work we're doing for the European Union on COVID-19 vulnerability assessments in six countries, we've got, again, double this amount of, of vulnerability assessment data to, to work with. So we're starting to get a fairly good picture of what some of those barriers are. I won't say a whole lot more, uh, just to point out that, that these tools are available, accessible uh, for all their uh, benefits and weaknesses on the uh, Cities Changing Diabetes website. And I think in the interest of time, I'm going to stop there. I do have some other city examples, but I think what I'll do is I'll just, I'll save those and let's see where the conversation takes us.